Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want to begin with apologies and thank yous. Uh, so my first apology, I am sorry that this talk is in English. Um, my first thank you. Thank you to Daniel for translating this talk into Spanish. So you should have translations, um, but I will try to speak audibly um, and not too fast. The, the second apology. Um, this talk is about Tolkien, so don't worry. Um, this talk does not start as if it were about Tolkien. Um, so don't leave. We will get to Tolkien. Um, so if it doesn't start the way you expect it to, don't worry. Um, the last apology um, for the camera, because this is being recorded, I need to sit. Um, so I'm, I can't stand and wander around and wave my hands. But um, I'll, I teach in Italy, so I'll still wave my hands. I'll just do it sitting down. Um, okay, let's begin. This talk is called Creation, Freedom, and Tolkien's Silmarillion. And I have structured it kind of like a play. Um, so it proceeds in three acts. Um, so we'll have act one, curtain close, act two, curtain close, act three, curtain close. Uh, act one. Once upon a time, in a land not so far, far away, there lived a man named Luis de Molina. Molina was a troubled man. His trouble was not a passing trouble. It was not a fleeting trouble. It was not a fading trouble. No, Molina's trouble was a persistent, consistent, insistent trouble. And it went something like this. On the one hand, if our acts are going to be truly free, if our acts are going to be truly meritorious, if our acts are going to be truly worthy of praise or blame, they have to be our acts. And that means that they cannot be forced upon us by someone else. They cannot be caused within us by something else. They have to be completely, entirely, and totally our own. So suppose one of you here tonight were to walk up to me in the middle of this talk and stab me in the neck with a pen. Imagine that. Now, suppose we found out that the reason you stabbed me in the neck with a pen was because, unbeknownst to you, someone put mind-altering drugs in your water. I think we would all agree that that would be very different from if you stabbed me in the neck because you hate me. Those would be different. In the first case, you didn't freely choose 
to stab me in the neck with a pen. In the second case, you did freely choose to stab me in the neck with a pen. It was your choice. So for our acts to be free, they have to be ours. And that means, Melina thought, that they cannot be caused by anything else, not even God, not even God. On the other hand, Melina was convinced that God is perfectly omniscient, perfectly omnipotent, perfectly provident. Melina believed that God is the first cause and the ultimate source of everything, and that nothing, absolutely nothing, escapes his foresight and his governance. And Molina didn't just think that because he was a man of faith, though he was a man of faith. And he didn't just think that because he was a Catholic priest, though he was a Catholic priest. And he didn't just think that because he was a theology professor, though he was a theology professor. No, Molina was convinced that you could prove, prove with rational arguments that God exists, that God is omniscient, that God is omnipotent, and that God is the provident governor of all that exists. And that led Molina to the problem. It led to Molina's trouble. On the one hand, we need to be the sole cause of our actions if those actions are going to be free. On the other hand, God needs to be the universal cause of everything if he is to be God. How do we reconcile those two claims? How can we show that human freedom and divine providence are compatible, that they fit together? The solution that Molina came up with is called the doctrine of middle knowledge. To understand that doctrine and to understand why Molina thought it would help solve the problem, we should ask what this so-called middle knowledge is in the middle of. What does it stand between? Well, one sort of knowledge that we can have is a priori knowledge of necessary things. What does that mean? Um, well, here's an example. I bet that no one in this room has ever actually counted to a thousand. None of us have actually taken the time to go one, two, three, and then five hours later, a thousand, right? We've never done that. But we don't have to have actually counted to a thousand in order to know that 500 plus 500 equals 1,000. That's because 500 plus 500 necessarily equals 1,000. There's nothing else that 500 and 500 could have equaled other than 1,000. And so we don't need to check 
to see if 500 plus 500 equals 1,000 by counting it out. We don't need to do that. That is necessary a priori knowledge. It's knowledge where you don't need to check in order to know it. A very different sort of knowledge is what we call a posteriori knowledge of contingent things. So that's the sort of knowledge that you have when I tell you that I had cereal for breakfast this morning. Or it's the kind of knowledge that you have when you know that six, the number six is what you rolled on a dice. I could have had eggs for breakfast this morning rather than cereal. I could have rolled a five on the dice instead of a six. Unlike 500 plus 500 equaling 1,000, these things could have been otherwise. They could have been different from the way they turned out to be. And we learn about those sorts of, the, of things after the fact, not before. Why am I talking about these two sorts of knowledge? Why am I talking about prior necessary knowledge and posterior contingent knowledge? Because Luis de Molina thought that the problem of human freedom and God's providence can be framed or expressed using these two sorts of knowledge. For if God is really the cause of everything that happens before it happens, then it seems like all of God's knowledge is necessary a priori knowledge. God knows everything before the fact, not after the fact. But if our choices are really free, then it seems like at least some of God's knowledge needs to be contingent a posteriori knowledge. In the first case, God is God, but we are not free. In the second case, we are free, but God is not God. And to Molina, both of those seemed bad. Now, his doctrine of middle knowledge is supposed to fix that problem. The idea is something like this. Some of God's knowledge is prior knowledge, but of contingent things. It's prior knowledge, but of contingent things. So it's not prior knowledge of necessary things. It's not like 500 and 500 equaling 1,000. So here's an image to help us sort of imagine what that might look like. Imagine God right before he creates the world. Now let's ask this question. At that moment, before he creates the world, what does God know? Well, he definitely knows everything that can be known with prior necessary knowledge. So he knows that 500 plus 500 equals 1,000. He knows that lines have to be straight or curved. He knows that um, something cannot both be 
and not be in exactly the same way at exactly the same time. He knows all of that. But is that all he knows? Not according to Molina. Before creating anything, Molina thinks God also knows what would happen if he created the world this way and what would happen if he created the world that way. He knows what would happen if I were to choose to eat eggs on the morning of November 14th, 2022, rather than cereal. Moreover, he also knows how he, God, would react to my choices in every possible case. So, for example, God knows the moment before he creates anything, how he will reward me with his grace if I make the sacrifice of eating cereal and I let Father Lucas eat the eggs. God also knows how he will punish me for my selfishness if I take all the eggs for myself and I leave for poor Father Lucas with cereal. But the fact that God knows ahead of time what will happen in every possible case does not conflict with our freedom. The fact that God knows what will happen, no matter what I choose, doesn't change the fact that it's my choice. It's my choice. And that's exactly what Molina wants to save. He wants to find a way for us to be truly free without threatening God's providence. And the doctrine of middle knowledge was Molina's way to do it. But our story doesn't end here. That's because an equally long time ago, in a land equally not so far, far away, there lived another man, a man named Domingo Banez. Like Molina, Banez was troubled. Like Molina, Banez's trouble was not a passing trouble. It was not a fleeting trouble. It was not a fading trouble. No, like Molina, Banez's trouble was a persistent, consistent, insistent trouble. His trouble, however, was Molina. For Banez, when he looks at Molina's solution to the problem of divine providence and human freedom, when he looks at Molina's doctrine of middle knowledge, when he seriously reflects on Molina's account of creation, he is horrified at what he sees. For in Molina's solution to the problem, Banez saw no solution at all. In fact, Banez was convinced that Molina's answer makes the problem worse because Molina's answer makes it clear where the problem is and then does absolutely nothing to answer it. Why does he think that? Because Banyas thought that Molina's doctrine of middle knowledge ends up subordinating the creator to his creatures, subordinating the Lord to his servants, 
subordinating God to us. Remember how middle knowledge is supposed to work. It tries to safeguard divine providence by insisting that before creating anything at all, God already knows what will happen, including how he will respond in any scenario. So before creating anything at all, God already knows both what will happen and how he will respond if Satan rebels and what will happen and how he will respond if Satan does not rebel. He knows already before it takes place, both what will happen and how he will respond if Adam and Eve take from the, the fruit from the tree of good and evil, and what will happen and how he will respond if Adam and Eve do not. And he knows that for every contingent event, everything that can happen, he knows it like that. Nothing surprises Molina's God. But for Banyas, it's not enough just to make sure that nothing surprises God. We have to make sure that God really is the ultimate and universal cause of everything. And Molina's doctrine of middle knowledge does not do that. In fact, Molina's doctrine of middle knowledge guarantees that God is not the universal and ultimate cause of everything. Worse still, Molina's doctrine of middle knowledge seems to imply that God is actually caused by created things, not in his existence, but at least in his actions. For Molina's God does not know prior to creating the world whether Satan will fall or not, whether Adam and Eve will eat the apple or not. He only knows what he will do and what else will happen if Satan falls or not, if Adam and Eve eat the apple or not. And that means that what God will do, right, God's actions, God's choices are actually being determined by us. This, Banya's thought, gets the order of causes backwards. If anything is going to be the cause of a free action, it should be God causing our free acts, not us causing God's free acts. So, if Molina is wrong and God does not create through middle knowledge, then how do we reconcile human freedom and God's providence? What is Banyas's solution to Molina's problem? In place of middle knowledge, Banyas gives us uh, a doctrine annoyingly called physical pre-motion. So for us today, that language sounds technical because it is technical. Um, so what is this doctrine of physical pre-motion? What does it mean? Well, according to Banyas, absolutely everything, both what is necessary and what is contingent is caused by God. More precisely, the doctrine of physical pre-motion holds that God 
causes necessary things to happen necessarily, and he causes contingent things to happen contingently. In other words, God is not just the cause of what happens, he's also the cause of how it happens. For example, God causes bodies with mass to move necessarily according to the law of gravity. He causes me to freely choose what I have for breakfast. Why is this called physical pre-motion? It's not because Banyas thinks that divine causality works through physical entities that are somehow prior in time to the things that they bring about. Physical pre-motion is a bit of technical terminology from the 16th century, and so it can help us just to take each piece of the phrase. So, the word physical is intended to, to contrast, to be set in opposition to merely moral or exemplary kinds of causes. So the idea goes something like this. Suppose you see me engage in an extreme act of virtue, right? You watch me say to Father Lucas, no thank you, when he brings me a fourth piece of chocolate cake. And you think to yourself, wow, Father Philip Neary is so virtuous. He only had three pieces of chocolate cake instead of four. I wish I could be like him. And what do you do? You then say no thank you to Father Lucas when he brings you a piece of chocolate cake. In that scenario, we can say that I was the moral or exemplary cause of your act of temperance, your act of virtue, right? I was the good example that led you to do what you did. But I didn't physically make you do anything. I wasn't really the cause of your choice. I was just the occasion, the opportunity for you to remember how you want to act and what sort of person you want to be. You were the real cause of your choice. So the physical part in the phrase physical pre-motion tells us that the sort of causing that we're talking about is a more robust, a more serious, a weightier kind of causing than the sort of causing that happens when you've got a good example. What about the pre-motion part? This is the bit that has to do with getting the order of causality right. So what comes first, God's causing or our causing? For Banyas, divine causality, so for example, when God gives grace, always precedes, it always comes before, it's always prior to our causing. So for example, our decision to cooperate with God's grace or our interior act of repentance. In other words, God's choices, God's actions, God's causality stand behind and lie at the heart 
of our choices, our actions, our causality. The two are not in competition. So who wins? Who wins the battle between Molina and Banyas? Who wins the fight over divine providence and human freedom? Should we side with Banyas and his doctrine of physical pre-motion? Or should we side with Molina and his doctrine of middle knowledge? Those are hard questions. And both sides have something going for them and something working against them. It's easy for us to see how Molina's view safeguards human freedom, but it's rather hard to see how Molina's view safeguards God's providence. After all, is it really enough just to guarantee that God is never surprised? Likewise, it's easy to see how Banyas's view safeguards divine providence, but it's harder to see how it safeguards human freedom. Is it really enough just to insist that physical pre-motion and human freedom are compatible? Nevertheless, there does seem to be at least one point on which the two views are not evenly matched. It's easy for us to come up with evocative metaphors illustrating Molina's doctrine of middle knowledge. It's harder for us to come up with illuminating images for Banyas's doctrine of physical pre-motion. On Molina's view, God is like a chess master who anticipates every possible move that his opponent might make. God is like a military strategist who can see all the possibilities latent in the terrain, the weather, the positioning of troops, the resources at hand, all the circumstances of the battlefield. God is like an architect who has already drafted all the blueprints for any building that you might need down to the finest detail. On Banyas's view, what can we say? God is the non-competitive universal cause of all things, the necessary things in their necessity and the contingent things in their contingency. That doesn't roll off the tongue and it's not easy to understand. What does it mean to say that God causes contingent things to happen contingently? An image would be nice. So at first glance, it looks like Luis de Molina has a slight edge over Domingo Banez. And with that, the curtain falls on act one. Act two. What, you might be asking yourselves, does any of this have to do with J.R.R. Tolkien? I came to hear a talk about the Silmarillion, not Luis de Molina and Domingo Banez and theological disputes in Spanish scholasticism. Fear not, the time for Tolkien has arrived. But first, I wanna open this act by insisting that there is a connection. Act one ended with a suggestion. Molina has the upper hand in the debate because it's easier for us to imagine or illustrate his way of reconciling freedom and providence um, than Banyas's. Now, with the Silmarillion, we're gonna test that theory. 
We're going to test that theory by considering one of the greatest storytellers, one of the greatest world builders, one of the greatest fiction writers who has ever lived, J.R.R. Tolkien. And we're going to look at the myth that Tolkien invented in order to tell the story of the creation of his fantasy world. And we're going to ask this question. Does Tolkien's creation myth in the Silmarillion support Molina's account or Banyas's? Also a word about the text. The Silmarillion is my absolute favorite of all of Tolkien's writings. And that's a strange thing to say. Um, most people like the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit because they're easy and they're fun. Um, some people who are sort of Tolkien nerds like the Book of Lost Tales um, because it's amazing. But even among Tolkien nerds, not many people would say that the, the Silmarillion is their favorite. Because the, Silmaril the Silmarillion is like J.R.R. Tolkien's Old Testament. Um, the number of characters, the myriad of names, the rapid fire sequence of events makes it hard to digest. You can't sit with the Silmarillion the way that you can sit with and get to know the characters in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. But it's my favorite. And it's my favorite precisely because of all the characters, all the names, all the events. I love epic world-building fantasy. And the Silmarillion is Tolkien at his epic world-building best. So that's what we're going to dive into. And the part of the Silmarillion that we're going to look at is called the Ainulindale, the music of the Ainur. It takes place before the Third Age, before the Second Age, before even the First Age in Tolkien's myth. The tale takes place before the very creation of Arda, or the Earth. The Ainulindale is Tolkien's creation myth, the story of how the physical world comes to be. And it begins like this, quote, there was Eru, the one, who in Arda is called Iluvatar. And he made first the Ainur, the holy ones, that were the offspring of his thought. And they were with him before aught else was made. And he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music, and they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while, they sang only each alone, or but few together, and the rest listened. For each comprehended only that part of the mind of Iluvatar from which he came, and in the understanding of their brethren, they grew but slowly. Yet, ever as they listened, they came to deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. That first line sounds an awful lot like the Gospel of John. But instead of the logos, which is singular, we have a plurality of limited individual thoughts. These Ainur are more like angels than the consubstantial son of God in Christianity. And it's clear that they need to grow and develop in order to achieve the musical harmony for which they were made. And it's at that point that we get the fall. Iluvatar sat and hearkened, and for a great while it seemed good to him, for in the music there were no flaws. But as the theme progressed, 
it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Iluvatar. For he sought to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. Some of these thoughts he now wove into his music, and straight away discord arose about him, and many that sang nigh grew despondent, and their thought was disturbed, and their music faltered. And some began to attune their music to his rather than to the thought which they had at first. Like Satan, Melkor was the greatest and most powerful of the created spirits, and he led his brethren astray. But Melkor's rebellion is musical rather than martial. Here, the ideas of sin and the fall are expressed with the image of discord and dissonance rather than war and strife. And it's at this point in the narrative that Tolkien has Eru Iluvatar rise three times and intervene. And then comes the passage, which I think of as Tolkien's theodicy. And it's the point where he addresses our question. Then Iluvatar spoke, and he said, Mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor. But that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar, those things that you have sung, I will show them forth, that you may see what you have done. And you, Melkor, shall see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any music, nor can anyone alter the music in my despite. For he that attempts this shall prove but my instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself has not imagined. Clearly, Iluvatar is telling Melkor that no matter what dissonant notes or discordant harmonies he chooses to sing, he will be unable to make the celestial symphony his own. Melkor's music will always be just one part of Eru Iluvatar's grand design. And Iluvatar doesn't just tell Melkor that, he shows it to him by giving a vision of the future. The music of the Ainur is going to take physical form and play itself out in the creation of Arda and the unfolding of the world's history. Tolkien's world is a music in matter. Its sorrows and tragedies are the disharmonies. Its joys and accomplishments are the harmonies. And its wonders, its marvels, the elements of creation that none of the Ainur could have anticipated, those are the direct interventions of Eru Iluvatar himself. Okay, now that we know the basic outlines of Tolkien's creation myth, we can return to our central question. Who wins, Molina or Banyas in the Silmarillion? At first glance, it seems like the Ainulindale supports Molina's account. So consider first the way that Eru Iluvatar rises three times from his throne to intervene in the music. That makes him sound something like a divine chess player. He's positioning his pawns, making his moves so as to checkmate his opponent, Melkor. Consider also what he says to Melkor and the Ainur 
once the music is over. Anyone who attempts to alter the music in my despite shall prove but my instrument in the devising of things more wonderful. That too makes it sound like Eru Iluvatar is anticipating what his opponents in the game will do, what moves they'll make. Most importantly, consider the vision that Eru Iluvatar grants to the Ainur of how their music will play out in physical form. That certainly seems like prior knowledge of future contingency. It's middle knowledge. But we shouldn't grant the victory to Molina quite so fast. For there are other elements of the Ainulindale that seem like they support Banyas. In particular, we have a line where Iluvatar tells the Ainur that no theme may be played that does not have its uttermost source in me. The idea seems to be that all possible music ultimately comes forth from Iluvatar, and any contribution that appears to be Melkor's own is just that, a mere appearance. Then we get another passage. Melkor had gone often alone into the void places, seeking the imperishable flame. For desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own. And it seemed to him that Iluvatar took no, no thought of the void, and he was impatient with its emptiness. Yet Melkor found not the fire, for it was with Iluvatar. The imperishable flame for Tolkien is the power of existence. And the myth makes it clear that that power resides in Iluvatar alone. So if we take it at its word, that passage implies that no one, none of the Ainur, can impart existence or being absolutely everything, including the free acts of creatures, needs to be caused to exist by Iluvatar. <laughs> So we've got a Molinist interpretation of the text on the one hand and a Bagnesian interpretation on the other. Both seem plausible. But it's one thing to say that we can interpret Tolkien's myth in a Banyas way. It's another thing to say that Tolkien's myth provides us with an illuminating image of Banyas's view. The prophetic vision that Eru Iluvatar gives to the Ainur is a nice image of Molina's middle knowledge. Is there a nice image of physical pre-motion? I think there is, but we have to radically change the way we're thinking about the Silmarillion and the myth. Up until now, we've been putting Eru Iluvatar in the position of God, and the Ainur in the position of creatures. And on the basis of that assumption, we've been asking whether the relationship between Eru Iluvatar and the Ainur is more like Molina's theory or more like Banyas's. But what would happen if we didn't put Eru Iluvatar in the position of God? What if instead we put J.R.R. Tolkien in the position of God? and both Eru Iluvatar and the Ainur in the position of creatures? What if we thought of Tolkien 
as creator and the Silmarillion itself, the Ainulindale itself as his creation. Is their relationship more like Banyas's account or more like Molina's? It is definitely more like Banyas's. Let me start with a positive argument. We saw in act one, Banyas's doctrine of physical pre-motion insists that God is the universal cause of everything, of necessary things in their necessity and of contingent things in their contingency. So God causes necessary things to happen necessarily and contingent things to happen contingently. But it's not obvious what it means to say that God causes contingent things to happen contingently. Does he push them? Does he push them, but kind of gently? What does that mean? Well, Tolkien's relationship to the Silmarillion gives us a nice image of what that means. Ask yourself this question. Is Tolkien the cause of everything that happens in the Silmarillion? Yeah. In the Silmarillion, do the tides rise and fall contingently? No, they rise and fall with necessity. In the Silmarillion, does Melkor introduce his discordant theme by necessity? No, he introduces his discordant theme contingently, freely. So Tolkien doesn't merely cause the tides to rise and Melkor to fall. He causes the tides to rise necessarily and Melkor to fall contingently. As the author of the work, Tolkien is the universal cause of everything that happens, both the necessary things and the contingent ones. And that is Banyas's view. The negative argument is simple. There's no image of Molina's middle knowledge in the relationship between Tolkien and the Silmarillion. In fact, Molina's middle knowledge gets it wrong, right? So Tolkien did not know ahead of time all the things that would happen if Melkor had just sung his part. In fact, Tolkien doesn't even know ahead of time, didn't know ahead of time, what would happen given that Melkor does sing discordantly. Tolkien says, I don't know what happens in the fifth age and the sixth age and the seventh age. He expresses doubt about what happens in the fourth age. Tolkien does not create through middle knowledge. So we have a clear example of how acts can have a prior cause without being robbed of their freedom. It's the relationship between Tolkien and the Silmarillion itself. With that, the curtain closes on act two. Act three, we've raised the problem of divine providence and human freedom. We've considered two attempts to resolve that problem. And while both views seemed to have their merits, there was one point on which Molina seemed to win. It seems like we have easy examples and images of Molina's view, but not of Banyas's. In act two, we saw that that difference was only apparent. While the internal narrative of the creation myth in the Silmarillion can be interpreted in a Banyasian way and in a Molinistic way, the relationship between Tolkien and the Silmarillion itself cannot. 
Tolkien's relationship to his characters is thoroughgoingly Bonyesian. While it makes perfect sense to talk about Tolkien as the universal cause of everything that happens in the Ainulindale, it makes no sense to ask what his middle knowledge is of the story. Now, for anyone in the audience who's keeping score, that brings us to a tie. Now, I want to suggest that Banyez really does win. My reason for thinking this is speculative, but hopefully fun and interesting. The reason is this. If Banyez is right about God's relation to creation and how best to reconcile providence and freedom, then that will have profound positive implications for how we think about human creativity. Why should we think that? The first phase is inductive. It goes like this. If Tolkien's relationship to the Silmarillion is a good example of God's creation to the world, of God's relationship to the world, then all authors' relationships with their stories are good images of God's relationship with the world. And if all authors' relationships to their stories are good images of God's relationship to the world, then all artists' relationship to their works of art are good images of God's relationship with the world. The thing that made Tolkien's relationship with the Ainulindale a good image of Banyaz's theory didn't have anything peculiar or unique to do with Tolkien and the Ainulindale. He's might be the best fiction writer, but he's not the only fiction writer. So to see why not, just ask yourself this question. Could we say the same thing about Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice? Could we say the same thing about Luis Borges and the short story, The Library of Babel? Yes. Austen is just as much a universal cause of everything that happens in Pride and Prejudice, both the necessary things and the free choices of her characters, as Tolkien is of what happens in the Silmarillion. And Borges is just as much a universal cause of everything that happens in the Library of Babel as Austen is of what happens in Pride and Prejudice. But we can go further. The thing that makes these authors' relationships to their stories good images of Banyas's theory isn't unique to authors and stories. It's common to all artists. And if that's right, then human creativity and human artistry in general offer us a good, easy, understandable image of Banyas's account of God's relationship to free creatures. In other words, if Banyas is right, the relationship between artist and artwork is an image of the relationship between creator and creation, God and world. Now I want to push a little bit further. If an artist's relationship to an artwork sheds light on God's relationship to creation, can we also say the reverse? Can God's relationship to creation shed light on how an artist relates to a work of art, how an author relates to a story? Yes. 
And I think that's very interesting for philosophy of art, philosophy of narratives, philosophy of authorship. Just as God exercises his causality over creation in a way that's completely different from the way that um, creatures exercise causality with each other, so too an author exercises causality in a way that's completely different from the way that characters exercise causality. So too an artist exercises causality over the elements of an artwork in a way that's completely different than the way that the elements of a work of art exercise causality on one another. Just as God exists on a completely different level of reality than creatures, so too authors exist on a completely different level of reality than stories and characters. And artists exist on a completely different level of reality than the works of art that they produce. That means that just as creatures are unreal when compared to God, he who is, so too characters are unreal when compared to authors. And likewise, and this I think is especially important for us in a modern contemporary technological age, artifacts are unreal when compared to the world of nature and natural things. That might seem like a bold claim, and I think it is, but it's also deeply traditional because St. Thomas Aquinas says that truth is the fit between mind and world, between mind and thing. But a fit implies a standard or a measure. And so Aquinas distinguishes different kinds of truth corresponding to different kinds of standards or measures. The highest and best sort of truth is the one that has God as its measure. In that sense, natural things are true when they measure up to God's idea of them. So a healthy horse with four legs is a true horse. A dead rose is a false flower. The next sort of truth is the one that, natural th that has natural things as the measure. In this sense, human thoughts are true when they measure up to the real natures of things in the world. In this sense, the thought that horse is healthy will be true just in case the real horse is healthy. The thought flowers are animals will be false always. Why? Because the nature of flowers is to be a plant, not an animal. The third and final kind of truth is the one that has the human mind as its measure. And this is the one that really matters for us. In this sense, artificial things are true when they measure up to or fit the idea that exists in the mind of the human craftsman, in the mind of the human maker. So a piece of metal is truly a fork only when it acquires a shape appropriate for spearing and holding food. A painting is a true Mona Lisa to the extent that it conforms to the plan that Leonardo da Vinci had in mind for his oil on poplar portrait of Lisa Gherardini. A performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is a true performance 
to the extent that, at least among other things, all the singers and the instrumentalists hit the right notes at the right volume. So to the extent that they sing and play their parts the way Beethoven intended it to be sung and played. One important thing to notice here is that while at least some of these kinds of truth admit of degrees, they really do differ in kind. So the truth that has God as its measure is a higher kind of truth than the truth that has um, the human mind as its measure, which is a lower kind of truth than the truth that has natural things as its measure. The reason that's important is because for Thomas, being and truth and reality come together. Where there's truth, there's being. Where there's being, there's reality. Where there's reality, there's truth. That means that if a work of art exists at a different level of truth than natural things, works of art exist at a little at a different level of reality or being than natural things. Sounds are natural things. Symphonies are works of art. Sounds are measured by the mind of God. Symphonies are measured by our minds. God gives existence and being to sounds. We give existence and being to symphonies and to stories and to Silmarillions. And that, I think, is deep. But we will never appreciate how deep it is if we side with Molina. Only Banez's view can show us what it really means to be the universal cause of an entire level of being or reality with all of its necessity and all of its contingency. It's only when we appreciate that that we can appreciate the dignity and the privilege that God has given to us as artists. Like the Ainur, of Tolkien's Silmarillion. We have been spun out of the mind of God. And like the Ainur of Tolkien's Silmarillion, we spin out worlds in our artistry and creativity. Our creativity is really and truly creative, even if it's not as really and as truly creative as God's. But that fact that our creativity gives birth to being is amazing and worth appreciating. Thank you. Curtain calls.